This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and changemakers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our time to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do. season is brought to you by your host Julia and Jacqueline and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich. Some people say the entrepreneurial spirit is something you are born with. This is something that could be true for our guest in today's episode, Vanessa Westfall. As a very young child, she already started selling stones in front of her house to top up on her pocket money, and she's kept the entrepreneurial spirit ever since. Vanessa graduated from Friedrichs Alexander University Erlangen Nürnberg in Seat and Howard in business and elect electrical engineering. Vanessa spent more than 10 years building a corporate career at Siemens, where she built and scaled an entrepreneurship accelerator and started an innovation entrepreneurship consultancy. But last year, she founded the company Choosy, which offers AI-optimized nutrition plans that suit both your taste and your health. Choosy aims not only to improve our individual nutrition habits, but also to make planetary health available to everyone. Over the course of the episode, we will dive deeper into Vanessa's journey. We will learn what she took from her experience of being an innovation driver within corporate Siemens and what made her switch to entrepreneurship again. Furthermore, we learn about her founding experience with Choosy and what her expert view on the importance of health and nutrition is. As always, we are also thrilled to, in the end, add Vanessa's personal toolbox to our resources for the innovators of tomorrow. Vanessa, we're very happy to have you here on our show. And as you know, we often have guests from different geographies. And I think it's always an interesting question to ask at the beginning, which is, what do you like most about the city where you currently live? Thanks for having me here in Munich. What I like most about Munich is actually outside of Munich. I love the mountains and I try to go there every weekend. Do you have a favorite hike in particular that you like to visit? Maybe the uh, Aachensee. It's not so close to Munich, but uh, I love that one. And yeah, around the Tegernsee, Schliersee and Spitzingsee or the lakes. Yeah. yeah, I think any lake is really pretty around here. <laughs> okay, we already have some good recommendations for our hiking friends in Munich. And if, if I'm not mistaken, you originally come not from Munich. And maybe you can also tell us a bit about how and why you moved to Munich. Yeah, I do. I did move actually quite a lot during my life. And I ended up in Munich due to work, basically. Before I was in Munich, I was living in Nuremberg and Erlangen for studies. And then I, I moved to Munich for work. When was it? That was, I think, three years ago. Or three and a half years. And you say you did your studies in Nuremberg and you originally have a background in engineering, right? Yes, exactly. I started studying electrical engineering with a focus on automation techniques and then switched to energy and power engineering throughout my studies. So I first studied engineering and then I studied management as well. I think it's also 
very cool to have women who have a tech background on our show. Maybe you can also tell more about how did you decide to choose this path? I mean, when, when we talked to each other in 101, you, you told me like a funny story how you ended up st studying engineering. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was actually quite simple. So I knew that I wanted to have like a good position sometime in a company. So I went through the list of German DAX CEOs and I realized they studied something technical. So I figured I got to study something technical. And then I just had a look at what's out there. And yeah, that's how I ended up in electrical engineering. But besides that, I also, I really liked math and anything technical. I wouldn't say that I was super confident that I was going to be good at it, especially because in electrical engineering, a lot of people that study that I like this typical, I don't know, people who already work on something in that field regarding like in the, as a hobby and who, who already did that during their schoolwork, but I didn't decided out of the blue to do something like that. So I thought I wasn't going to be good, but it worked out quite well. But was it the right decision in the end? Absolutely. I loved it. I really, really loved it. It was, I think, the best decision. I really enjoyed the studies and also I did actually a dual study system. So I did an apprenticeship in parallel in automation techniques. And that was the best decision ever. I enjoyed the apprenticeship so much, really. I love to do something with my hand to create something. And I would have never picked that if there wasn't this opportunity of dual studies. So that was pretty great. I think that's really amazing. And so you mentioned that you sort of in part chose engineering because you looked at the doc CEOs and they had all studied engineering. Did you know from an early age that you wanted to be a founder or I guess, how did you make the jump into founding? No, I wouldn't necessarily say I always wanted to be a founder, not at all. Even though my dad has always had his own company, I was very much raised by my mom and she always told me, you got to get a good job and work your way up the career ladder. And that was so much imprinted into my brain that I would have never thought I'm going to become a founder. But looking back now, I kind of always started to do something of myself. And I think the first time I started selling things was when I was still in elementary school. I always tried to build something and sell it. I actually started selling my toys on the streets because I figured I don't need them anymore. And then I realized that people who were buying from me were like adults passing by and they weren't buying toys from me because they wanted the toys. And also I wasn't give, willing to give away all my toys. So I figured I needed something new. And then I started selling them stones because I realized they just wanted to give me some money and see a happy child. Right marketing approach to your target group. I'm actually, the part that I'm most proud of is that I sold, like, like I picked up the stones from our neighbor's garden and I actually sold them back their own stone. I'm pretty sure they figured. <laughs> yeah, just sounds like early experience with product market fit <laughs> and supply chain optimization. Yes, but I also did some more serious things. I actually got into video editing quite early and website building. And yeah, so I always try to do something, something besides my main, my main job or my main occupation, may it be going to school. <laughs> but 
maybe also Vanessa, after you like stopped selling stones to people and before you started building a real company, you also had a very long career path at the corporate at Siemens. Could you also tell us a bit more about this experience? Why did you decide to go to corporate? And I mean, you also built an impressive career there, uh, which you in the end abandoned uh, for your own startup. I actually enjoyed my time at Siemens very much. It was a difficult step to leave that path behind. When I decided I wanted to study electrical engineering, I quickly figured that I'm going to need some money to finance my studies. And I figured that the easiest way to do so is by selecting a dual studies program because then the company pays for it. And I still highly, highly recommend that to anyone who needs a solution to finance their studies and a good way to start a career. Yeah, so I ended up at Siemens and I always threw out the stations. So I, I switched my professions there quite a lot. Any professional trying to design a development path for me would have been so frustrated because I always switched positions so much. I actually went from engineering as a solution architect to basically a central support function. Let's say a lady for everything for the service Yeah, CEO or the, the like the country, the regional company, Germany at that time. And then into management consulting and from there on into building and leading an incubator at Global Business Services Unit. So that is quite, quite far away from the engineering department where I started. But I was always really, really keen on learning something new. And I, I, I like to say I'm a nerd. And wh why do you think it was the case that you like always changed your, your roles? Was it like the, the curiosity or was it something else? It was always the curiosity when I felt like I wasn't moving as fast as I could. I wasn't learning as much as I could somewhere. Then I was always trying to switch. And I, when I was, it was, it was always a lot of coincidence involved actually. And I, what I always had clear in mind, though, was what I wanted to learn. So when I, for example, switched into management consulting, I had very clear in my mind before I actually made the switch that I wanted to learn how a big company is steered from the top and how it actually functions. So that was my main goal there. And then the reason for the next step was I realized that I like to build products. My last project within management consulting was building a product for a client, so very untypical strategy consulting project mm. and the other skill that I wanted to learn is leading people so these two skills and then the opportunity came along and I I don't know I didn't even think a day about it I said yes <laughs> great also for for our listeners I want to remind that Vanessa actually spent almost 10 years building a corporate career at Siemens and also Vanessa like while, while I was reading your your LinkedIn were you also very active as a As, as a vlogger, I would say, you also state that you felt insecure leaving this steady career path at Siemens and jumping into the unknown, which is your current startup. Like, what was the ultimate reason to abandon this steady path and go into founding? I think it kind of evolved over time. So if you would have asked me that same question, do you want to become a founder two years ago, I would have said, Sounds interesting, but maybe not for me. But I was already already a bit curious about it. And then a kind of chain of coincidences happened or coincidences that I kind of, yeah, I, was, I would say I was also responsible for these coincidences. But yeah, you know, it, it's a mixture. So I kind of started building the idea in my head. 
not necessarily the idea for the company, but the idea of becoming a founder, because I saw so much discussion around entrepreneurs, so corporate entrepreneurs not being taken seriously, that I thought, okay, so at that point in time, the, the corporate entrepreneurs that I was working with, they received 20% of their time to, yeah, to build something for the corporate. And I thought, okay, if I demand that from them, I have to deliver myself. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have a side project. 20% of my time equals one day and I'm going to build something. And I didn't know what it was yet. And then it was super funny because just one morning I woke up, I had a very, very realistic dream. And that is actually the start of the, the company that I'm, the startup that I'm building now, but more, more about the founder story later, I think. But yeah, so it started. And then I kind of abandoned that idea because the two people that I started working on this idea with, and as a side project, I just realized it didn't work out. And then I thought, okay, maybe let's do something different. And I just started telling people about it. And again, trying to sell things that I could sell that were based on my know-how at that point in time, that was entrepreneurship, coaching and consulting. So I opened another business and started, I figured, yeah, I got to learn to sell if I want to become an entrepreneur. So that was the first thing I focused on. And then another coincidence happened. I met my co-founders via a co-founder matching platform that I just registered on for fun. I didn't really think that anything would come out of it. It's also an American platform from Y Combinator. And out of coincidence, these two people they already matched each other before and one of them had the exact same idea as I had. And he had approached it from a different angle and he had already gotten a bit further. So he had actually already come up with an MVP. And so I thought, wow, how many coincidences can there be? And that gave me the final push. We met like, I think we, we met virtually on one day, met in person the next day. And one week after I handed in my letter of resignation. <laughs> So that was also super spontaneous, yeah. What was the reaction of your colleagues at, at Siemens? <laughs> I already decided quite some time before that I'm going to quit the job that I had at that time. Basically, the main reason for that was I had quite big plans where I wanted to lead this incubator and the division where I was at was just not at the stage where they needed such a big incubator or they didn't want it at that time, didn't have the budget. So they shortened the budget and I was super frustrated and... It took me like two to three months to realize, okay, if I'm just hitting walls, I might just go somewhere where I'm not hitting walls. I told everybody that I'm going to leave before I even had a job lined up or anything. I just thought, okay, I'm going to leave anyway. So I, I might just wait. <laughs> I might just as well go ahead and tell everybody. I think that's really inspiring. Many people say like, follow your dreams. And I think it's really cool that you literally did that. And briefly going back to something that was mentioned on your website and back to something that you mentioned earlier that you do coaching and consulting i mean i'm feeling so inspired already are you still involved in coaching is that something you're still pursuing so i actually get asked this question quite a lot because i'm still in touch with a lot of people in corporates or people who just think about founding and I'm actually considering about uh, considering to start a channel on TikTok. It's a very new platform also for me to share a bit my founder story, but also share ups and downs along the way with people just like you and I who think about starting their own business. Because I realized when I actually started with the, or the idea of becoming a founder came up, I read all of these books and amazing books from, I don't know, Netflix founder or talks from the airbnb founder but they're like 
if they if, if you can read the book now it's from 10 years ago so the market has changed so much and i always felt like there's so much time that has passed i would have liked something that is more on a day-to-day -day basis and like get a little sneak peek into the life of an actual founder and i'm thinking about actually doing that cool also like i think it's the, the, the first time that i hear someone mention a dream or like a startup idea coming in a dream and as jacqueline just said it's literally like following your dreams do you still remember like the the content of this dream it was super weird because i dreamt of an advertisement of what the company delivers. So what we do is we do an app for meal planning. You could say a Spotify for good nutrition, healthy and sustainable nutrition, where you kind of, it gives you peace of mind in terms of what you eat in the day. And I had, I dreamt this advertisement and I dreamt the feeling. I've never dreamed a feeling before. It sounds super weird, but I knew, I dreamt how you feel when you use it. And that is still my goal to develop it, to come to that point. I just realized last week when I was using it, that it's already quite close to giving me that feeling of what I dreamt of, because it's already has a lot of functionalities in terms of what I dreamt of. Of course, there's a lot of opportunity to improve and expand it, but yeah. And the advertisement was actually, I never, I never talked about this advertisement, I have to say, but I can, I can give only some information right because maybe someday somebody's going to create it and then i'll be really freaked out it was like just a, a yellow background and with some words on it and they said a name and then it says like different eating styles so eats organic eats blah blah blah, eats blah blah and the advertisement was showing how people follow the nutrition style of somebody else by a click. So really simple, really like Spotify. And you didn't have to take care of or think so much about what do you have at home? What can you go shopping? Yeah, <laughs> it sounds a bit chaotic, but in my dream, it was very vivid and it was very clear that I needed something like that. <laughs> but Vanessa, why nutrition? Have you already had some touch points with this topic before having this dream or how, how did you come up with it, with this area? I asked myself that quite a lot too, because yes, I did have some touch points throughout my life with nutrition. I'll get to that in a second. But in terms of the past 10 years, what I did was all I identified as an engineer and a consultant. So it felt kind of weird that the dream came up too. <laughs> so it felt weird to me. And I have to admit, I'm not a great cook. And I'm the person I'm, I was known among my friends to never have anything in the fridge. When I was studying, I would literally eat like the little lint chocolate balls on toast because that was the only thing I had at home. So I'm not known for very, very good nutrition, but I do care about it a lot. And it's just like when life got chaotic, I never managed to be good in eating well. But actually, when I was super young, my brother has a strong neurodermatitis and asthma. So when we were three years old, like, really really young we always had to pay attention to what we eat as a family and at that point in time i started realizing that yeah what you eat matters you could see in his skin and his health directly the impact in terms of what he ate and i found that so crazy and so i actually got into the topic quite a lot and i read a lot of studies and and books about it and realized how your how your gut influences what you think 
And actually 90% of information travels from the gut to the brain and only 10% of the information on this gut brain axis travels from the brain to the gut. So it's actually pretty powerful. You told the story about your brother and also how you cared about what you eat in your family. How did your family actually react to you saying that you're going to found a company in the nutrition space? Were they happy about that? Not at all. <laughs> I, when, I, when I dreamt about the idea or of the idea, I, I told my mom a couple of weeks later when I was at home for her birthday, I think. And I said, yeah, I have this great idea. And... It was shortly before Christmas and I started working on this idea as a side project and she already didn't like me working so much anyways. So she was like, okay, now you're working as a side project on top of your 60, 70 hour work. And I said, oh, well, <laughs> I dreamed of this, so I want to do it. And it's either going to fail or it's going to be big in a year. And she laughed at it. She didn't take it serious at all. And that is actually when I realized I need to learn to sell, because if I can't even sell to my mom, who am I going to sell to? <laughs> my parents didn't like it at all, quitting my good job in corporate. She already saw me climbing up the career ladder. And I, well, I did see myself do that too. But then, you know, ambitions change. But I think it's also true that we tend to carry lessons with us throughout our lives. So going back to what you were saying earlier about entrepreneurship lessons that you learn from Siemens, do you think you still practice some of those entrepreneurial tactics in your daily life? And if so, how do you see that? Hmm, I've never been asked this question before. I think entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship are not so different after all. I think what is very similar is that you're trying to start something new and you kind of You're, you're committing to like a social risk, basically. There's always this possibility of failing, right? And as an entrepreneur, when you fail, you fail basically against the world. When you fail in an organization, as an entrepreneur, you fail for that organization. Outside, pretty much nobody else cares. But it's always like that. So I think this willingness to take risk and being used to running against walls and tearing them down, that's definitely something that's very common. And for both entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship and something that I didn't like when I started in entrepreneurship and something that I love now. Also, maybe coming back to selling stones and convincing your mom. So you also like mentioned this ability to sell your idea to people is very, very important for entrepreneurship. What would you say? Does this skill help you now as an entrepreneur and how important it is and how can you improve it? What would be your advice to young entrepreneurs who want to sell their idea? I think it's one of, if not the most important aspect of becoming an entrepreneur And my advice would be just start, start selling. Even if you don't know what, let's say you want to found a company and you don't have an idea yet. Think about what you already have right now that you can sell because it gives you confidence. And just speaking about it, saying, hey, I have my own business is a huge help. And because it helps you, your mind to be become more clear about it. And if you speak or if you have to speak about something, you actually think about it. So my advice would be just, just start. And my number two advice would be try to find a network of people with whom you can start. So maybe other founders or maybe even other business owners. I <laughs> actually commented on a post from actually a good friend of mine now, 
But at that time, uh, somebody I didn't know, and we got in touch via LinkedIn. She has this amazing ladies network. All or most of them are business owners. And I just went there for one of the network meetings. I didn't know anybody. And actually on the way there, I turned around and when I walked back, I was already seeing the restaurant where they would meet. And I was like, okay, I can't do this because my plan was go there and tell everybody that I'm running a business about entrepreneurship just to get outside of my comfort zone. And yeah, so I, I turned around and then I thought a minute, wait a second. I came all the way here. It wasn't a long train ride. It was like 20 minutes, but nevertheless, I came all the way here. What is the worst case that can happen? And I realized the worst case is if I just go home and nothing happens. So I went there and in the evening there were like 20 ladies and I told every single one that would listen to me that I started a business about entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah. So that would be my number two advice. Go out and tell people about it. Wow, it's actually super powerful like to tell everyone at the party that you're starting a business. What was their reaction? Really positive, all supportive. They were instantly thinking about whom they could connect me with. And I'm still in touch with a lot of these people. Yeah, it's surprising to see when I, I think we have a saying that if you're, how does the German saying go? Like if you're quiet, nobody can help you. Sprechende Menschen kann geholfen werden. And I would even say, not if you speak up, people can help you. If you speak up, people will help you. I was just thinking about that phrase. And I think in English, there's a similar phrase of closed mouths don't get fed. But <laughs> no, everything that you've been saying is super inspiring. And so I was wondering if what resources you sort of went through to develop your leadership style and what you would say your leadership style is. Hmm, probably many, many resources. I'm really such a nerd. I read and read so much, watch so many videos. Like I ditched Netflix for a masterclass uh, subscription. <laughs> so it's like counting the, the resources or naming all the resources would be very difficult. But my leadership style is actually, I think it's inspirational. I think people always motivate themselves. So the best style of leadership that I can do is not to demotivate people, but to give them room to motivate themselves. So one of my values are freedom, like giving people freedom and authenticity. And I think leading people was also something that you did a lot at Siemens. And you also told me that you are very keen on HR topics. So what did you learn also within your corporate career about the team dynamic, employee motivation, and what of that knowledge could you apply now at Choosy? I'd say actually in a very similar direction. I saw a lot of motivated people that got demotivated by bad leadership style. And so... I think if I manage to not demotivate people, I'm happy. <laughs> I can I can be proud. And one th so one thing is not demotivating people. And the other thing is giving people the opportunity to, to move where they want to move and to see it in a positive light. What I observed quite a lot in corporate is, oh my God, this person is quitting Siemens or, oh my God, this person is quitting this department. So what? My view was always to twist it and say, how awesome I expanded my network now to this and this company where that person moved. This is really great. And I still think the same way about people in my own company or in my startup right now. If, if they want to move on, that's absolutely fine. And if we can provide an opportunity within our startups, even better. But I'm, I never take anything for granted and I never 
I would never be mad for people to move on. Even just the opposite. I always want to develop people because I think as a world and as a society, we gain when people are where they are really happy about what they do. Was there a moment in your founder career when you felt frustrated as a leader or maybe as a founder, as a woman in entrepreneurship? Was there that kind of moment? Yeah, all the time, like little moments, I would say not, not every day anymore, but because I also try to manage my feelings, emotions and energy very consciously, which is something I would recommend every founder does. But one huge yeah sad moment was for me when we tried to raise our first round and it didn't work it was in the middle of the in the crash i'm not, i'm not sure if i should say this but actually i think founders should speak more about when fundraising rounds fail because after i started talking about it i realized there are so many founders where fundraising rounds fail and i wish to see more headlines of Not like this and this startup raised X million, but like headlines about what a great product they build. I think it's out of laziness of journalists just writing about how much money a startup raised instead of writing what a great product there is. Looking back now, it was the best thing that could have happened to us, not raising. But in that very moment, I was super sad, super frustrated. And the worst part about it was that my co-founder and I tried to split the fundraising role. I would talk to all the females and he would talk to all the males. And what we realized was that there was a world of difference on how the females approach fundraising and how the males approach fundraising, how they like made intros and how they were willing to help or not, how long it took. And of course, everything I'm saying is just for Germany. We just focused on Germany. But yeah, what we definitely saw was that females were more hesitant to make introductions. The way they made introduction was usually going to that person that you want to have an introduction for, ask them if it's fine if they make the introduction, ask for the pitch deck beforehand so they can have a look at it and evaluate it, even if they wouldn't invest at all because they don't invest. But then they make the introduction. Or some didn't ask for the pitch deck, but usually 99% always like approach that person you want to have the introduction to first. Whereas the males, usually within the meeting where you ask, oh, can you make an introduction to XYZ? They were like pulling out their phones and writing that through text directly while they were in the meeting. Whereas the females were like, I don't know. I just want to forward something where I'm super convinced of. And they were a bit hesitant. The males usually were super proud that they were the person who was able to make their introduction. They're like, yes, of course I know that. And X and Y, Z. They were so proud of it. There was a huge mentality difference. And that made me super frustrated because I think that person who makes introduction does somebody else a favor. And favors always get returned. Maybe sometime down the line, but favors always get returned. So we as females are kind of taking favors away from ourselves by being too shy to give favors more frequently. And the other part is it's also quite inefficient. So if you take the time and ask somebody first, can I make this introduction and take a look at the, all the pitch takes? I mean, in the end, the person that invests makes the decision. It's their money. So yeah, <laughs> that was the biggest moment of frustration in my very young startup career so far. 
I think women tend to be a bit shyer. And I, as personally as a woman, think a lot about how I can be more bold. And do you have any ideas on how we can empower each other, I guess, to be bolder in these kinds of situations so that everyone can benefit? My advice would be always think about worst case scenario. What's What if everything goes wrong and then you realize there's not that much that can go wrong, actually? And then the five second rule, five, three, two, one, go. I skipped the four. I think what also would be super interesting to to the young founders among our listeners, you've mentioned like this tough situation in the market where when you try to raise your round, what was what what were your learnings during this time? And did you change your strategy to adjust it to the market situation? The most difficult part was that we were raising for the first time such a large sum. And then at the same time, the market climate just changed drastically. So two challenges at the same time, I would say. Regarding the the first, I think for a first-time founder raising for the first time, it's really good to have a plan. And we kind of let ourselves be pulled in from a couple of VCs that showed interest. And then we were moving faster than we wanted and then kind of I would say events collided and we had interest and then that kind of collided with the market, with the market climate, to be honest, but stick, make a plan and stick to it. So try to schedule as many conversations as you can. Give yourself a time frame and then schedule all conversations there. Plan enough time for networking beforehand. A lot of founders told me, well, I raised within two weeks, three weeks. Yeah, maybe. That's true, but you need a network for that. Let's be honest. Let's speak about it. It's more difficult for people who don't have a network. So just plan time for it and be also honest and in really interested also in the people and not just see them as a like pure transactional relationship and rather focus on these people who you really want to have in the company and not just, you know, anybody. So that would be my advice. And beyond that, get used to getting a lot of no's and don't be frustrated by it. Try to develop a mental support system for getting a lot of no's. It's very similar to sales mentality, actually. And I underestimated how much a psychological game fundraising is. That would be my, my top learnings. And regarding if the market climate changes, I mean, founders are still raising. And the most difficult part at the time was there were a lot of news coming up from companies that raised successfully because there is a lag in terms of when a company raises versus when the news come out. So it was kind of misleading. And when the posts on LinkedIn started piling up about how the market is changing, the market already had changed. So that was quite difficult. But I think in total... It's so overglamorized that startups raise a lot of money. I think most startups don't need as much as they raise. And it's good to also limit yourself a bit to be able to focus on what's most relevant. So when you then actually raise, you can put the money where it's used best. If you have to think about how can we do something for free, you also get creative, right? <laughs> what exactly do you mean by the psychological game? I'm mostly referring there to, first of all, the founder's mindset, but also the mindset you have to get the investor in in order to say yes. I mean, we all know the, the FOMO effect. If you think everybody's investing in that company, then you're more likely to say yes. 
And when you think, oh, this is my last chance to say yes, you're also faster to say yes. And that's a technique that's used quite often. But in order to generate that FOMO, you need a lot of confidence. I underestimated how much confidence you need to create FOMO because you need to be able to leave the table and say, okay, these, if you want these conditions, then no, or we have 10 investors lined up. We don't need you. This is the kind of mindset that it needs. But if you, it's like, if it's the first investor you're speaking to, you're not going to act like that because you don't know if you're actually going to be able to get these 10 investors lined up. Whereas if you're raising for the fourth time or the second time, even you know that you can do it and your belief in yourself or your self-concept is a totally different one. And that's difficult to get as a first-time founder. I think that's a really good point and just highlights the importance of goals, but also ambition. So leading into the next question, at CDTM, we talk about BHAGs a lot or a big, hairy, audacious goal. Do you have a BHAG for Choosy? And if so, what is that? <laughs> Yes, yes, I do. I would say yes, we do. My co-founders and I actually made a little like newspaper article and it reads eating habits crashed for good. So if we manage to really change what people are eating for the better in terms of having less deaths and less chronic diseases from major eating issues and really moving the needle when it comes to climate change, then our ambitions are met. And if that's somehow connected to our efforts at Choosy, we would be so proud. So that is that is definitely one. I think it's actually a perfect transition to the next topic that we wanted to discuss with you. Namely, we want to, of course, speak with you about the nutrition industry because you are now an expert in this space. And what you've just mentioned regarding the way people eat, what do you think is wrong with how we eat right now? And which trends do you see at the moment, both positive and negative? I would say there are more things wrong with how we eat right now than right. Not in terms of, not that I want to judge, but it's, it's quite difficult when you walk consciously into a supermarket. Supermarkets are designed for us to buy shit. Sorry to say that, but that's how they are designed. And there are only a handful of companies that are leading in this space. And it's quite difficult to battle against them. For example, when you enter a supermarket, it starts with the, the fresh goods. And that's in order for you to mentally tick, hey, I bought some fresh stuff to buy more of the packaged things. And when you can then go through the aisles of the packaged things, most are really, really unhealthy. I mean, processed food in general are not so healthy. Also, most of the processed food we find in supermarkets are really unhealthy. Most of us have lost the know-how of what is actually in season in the region where they're living. I would claim most of us don't know that. And I have to admit, I myself also didn't know that at all. When I was living in a flat together with my study colleagues, <laughs> one of them who was actually into nutrition quite some time ago always made fun of me and said, regional seasonal eating, that's exactly what you stand for, right, Vanessa? <laughs> because I was just always shopping whatever I could find. And I think that's showing the shopping behavior that most people have when it comes to food. And the other thing is that, I mean, for our climate, that's also, it's not just bad for our bodies, but also bad for our climate. One third of greenhouse gas emissions comes from what we eat. In addition to that, 
the bad agriculture style that we have for the majority of the products that are in the shelves that also influences our environment and the animals that live in it. And yeah, then one trend, I mean, that is big in the news right now is all the alternative proteins. I do sometimes also post about alternative products and I like to think about what alternative products are out there to get all your nutrients that you need. But when it comes to alternative proteins, it's not that there is a lag in terms of the vegetables and the fruits that this earth provides. But yeah, the danger that I see is that not all alternative protein products are healthy. And it's also a processed food. And I feel like it gets glamorized a lot that, oh my God, alternative proteins are the savior. And I think it's not true. What you're talking about is that if you're eating like a greasy burger, whether it's with meat or with like a fake meat, it's still unhealthy for your body, even if it's healthier for, for the planet. And also, I think what you do at Choosy a lot is promoting this climate-friendly nutrition. Can you explain what exactly it is, climate-friendly nutrition, and how Choosy contributes to that? So there's one diet name for it, planetary health diet, so to say. And that's about eating something that is healthy as well for the body as well as for the planet. And mostly it means, very bluntly and simply speaking, eating what's in season, trying to reduce processed food as much as you can. And what we think at Choosy and also why we build Choosy is because for most people that feels like when you when you think about healthy eating, you you directly think about, oh my God, I, I can only eat salads all, all day and it's not going to be tasty at all. And that's just not true. There are so many amazing meals with the goods and the vegetables and fruits that are grown seasonally also here in, in Germany. We just don't know the recipes. So that's why Choosy suggests recipes of ingredients that are in season and thereby taking the mental load out of people's minds that they have to actually come up with what to eat. Yeah, I think that's, that's very cool and a very admirable mission that's carried out in a really interesting way. So how would you say that Choosy fits into a larger mission of sustainability? I would say by reducing emissions from the food that we eat by changing eating habits. So we say changing eating habits for good. And it's actually, it has to do a lot with, with habits in terms of what we shop. 67% of consumers always shop the same brands. And when we look at the same products, the number is even higher. When you think about what do you shop on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, you'll discover very similar products. So we think it needs a behavior change in order to achieve the sustainability goal for nutrition. Speaking of behavior change and sort of habits in the supermarket, we saw on your LinkedIn, you wrote about meat prices in Germany decreasing again, and that this trend was sort of very irritating. Why do you think the trend of meat prices decreasing is sort of dangerous? And also, why is it happening? So maybe first, why is it happening? Of course, supermarkets say it's because of the lower prices in the production. But in reality, independent newspapers say it's because of less demand. And I think we can observe that quite well. So I think the main reason is just less demand. And how do you steer up demand? Well, by lowering prices. So that's the logic response to that. It's definitely dangerous because the positive behavior of people buying less meat is then compensated with new incentives 
Maybe also on a positive note, because you post not only about bad news, so to say, on, on your LinkedIn. I also saw recently when you posted about a climate-friendly alternative to coffee, because we, we all know that coffee is also not sustainable, especially in the, in the volumes that we consume it in Europe. Can you maybe tell us more about this example of climate-friendly coffee? And maybe do you have some other examples of how we can substitute our daily products with some more healthy and sustainable alternatives. Happy to do that. So the coffee alternative that I wrote about is are lupines. They grow in yeah in, in Europe, for example. So I think generally watching out for what grows locally and try to yeah exchange that with alternatives is usually what I look out for. And lupines are very close in terms of the taste. They have quite a bitter taste. There are only certain kinds of lupines that are actually good for consumption, but there are more and more companies offering coffee from Lupines. And it's actually the oldest form of coffee. So when coffee was first imported, Lupines were basically already there. I actually don't know if I'm saying the name correctly in English, but I guess you know what I'm talking about. So at that point in time, Lupines were the cheaper alternative to coffee. So they were actually quite widespread and coffee was more for the rich people because well, it was imported. And I can only recommend it. I think it tastes great. And for me, the positive side effect is that it doesn't have caffeine. And I wanted to reduce that anyway, so that was quite good. Other alternatives, products that you should definitely think about replacing is butter. The climate footprint of butter is way worse than the climate footprint of meat. I mean, you don't usually wow. eat it in one kilogram pieces or 250 gram pieces, at least. I don't think so. But it, the butter is way, way, way worse. How can we substitute it? There are some alternatives made out of oats, for example, or you can use oil or alternatives made out of oil. I think there are some from Kuru and the vegan cow. I, I was actually planning about making a post about them. <laughs> so yeah, that is definitely some. Or the very, very famous, uh, famous superfoods. You don't need goji berries. Why would you need goji berries? There are also berries that grow here that have the same nutrients or you don't need the, how do you call it the, in English, the chia versus sesame. The sesame has the same or very, very similar nutritional profile. And I think realizing that when you take all the things that are grown locally, you can just have like a full nutritional profile. It serves all your needs. So being... Yeah, just sensitive about that and realizing that you might not need all the exotic stuff. It's good to have some, yeah, variation for fun, for sure. I fully understand. Also, when we talk about avocado, some people really, really like the taste. I also really like the taste and the consistency is very unique. So it's very difficult to actually replace it. I'm still looking for something. So I try to minimize it where to meals where I really, really want and need the avocado taste. And for other meals where it's just like an add on, I try to find alternatives. So, and the alternatives might, might vary from meal to meal. It's not always the same. That's what it makes it a bit difficult. I appreciate the substitutes that you just listed, especially as it fits into your larger mission of helping people make a change for good. When it comes to individual choices, I am curious whether or not you think people are ready to account for sustainability while making their nutrition decisions. And if so, what can everyone do to sort of raise awareness and make better sustainability decisions when it comes to nutrition? 
I think people are getting more and more ready to make better decisions. But I think especially in Germany and especially in Bavaria, we still have a large crowd who thinks most often older male people who think they really need their meat in order to feel male. And they have been <laughs> successfully caught by marketing efforts from big companies that told them a couple of years ago that if you eat meat, you're a male, <laughs> a male person. Yeah. So kind of a bit less uh, stigmatizing or, or laughing a bit about it. I think it takes some sense of humor. And that's what we're working on with Choosy, making healthy, sustainable foods the easiest choice. I think most of the time people just, when it, comes, it collides with their everyday life, it's difficult to always make the best choice because sometimes the least good one is, is just easier. For example, ordering pizza. So I think healthy, sustainable nutrition should be the easiest choice. And there are many, many players that can work on that along the entire value chain. So it can be, can be apps, but it should also be the supermarkets. It should be the food brands. I would like to see supermarkets that are designed in a way that you're actually incentivized to buy what's good for you and not to buy what's shit for you. I think that's what needs to change. I think also great leaders lead by example. Maybe you can also tell us how long did it take you personally to change your nutrition habits to to eat locally, sustainably and healthier for your body as well? It actually didn't take me so long. And <laughs> I used our app for that. So it took me like two weeks and I even changed my partner's nutrition style with it as well. And he loves it so much now eating way healthier. And we both realized that we are way fitter than before, look different. And yeah, <laughs> he said, can't you also found like a cleaning service or <laughs> because yeah, he, like, he likes it a lot and it works quite well for us. So it took like not that long. Before we wrap up this episode, we have the last section for our guests, which is a very short one, but very important and interesting, where we ask short questions and you have to give us short and quick answers. Okay. So lightning round, what are some books that you think everyone should read? <laughs> for financial intelligence, I would say Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's also a pretty well-known one. If you want to get motivation to change your eating habits, I'd highly recommend The Diet Compass or Der Ernährungskompass from Baskast. And one that I just read lately, just came out in May. It's from Tony Fedel and it's called Build. And it's actually about somebody who was both an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. And I love how he points out how the things are, the two things are not so different. And he has built the iPhone, I think, and also the company Nest. <laughs> What is the app that everyone should download? Easy one, the Choosy app. <laughs> <laughs> What is a podcast that you love listening to? Actually, a couple. I listen to very different podcasts. I can definitely recommend Baby Gut Business from Ann-Kathrin Schmitz. It's about business building and I really like that one. Then I can recommend Freakonomics. They always have different topics. It's very much focused on psychology. And my favorite one is about boredom and like the episode uh, and the Mighty Business podcast from my friend Natalie. That's also a really good one. It's about female leadership. Yeah, those are the ones I would recommend. What is the routine that you follow? 
think my most important routine of the day is my morning meditation. So once I get up in the morning, I go outside and I meditate for at least half an hour. And I try to not check any media before that to start the day with a positive attitude. Oh, that sounds really great. I'm feeling peaceful just thinking about it. <laughs> if you haven't tried it, you have to, you have to, it really, it literally changes so much. Yeah, I feel like I have to do so much after this episode. <laughs> Download Choosy, follow you on TikTok, start the morning meditation. <laughs> Sell but- stones. Yes, yes, that too. But speaking of people to look up to, who's an innovator with foreign roots everyone should know? Sarah Blakely. She's the founder of Spanx. I don't know if you know her company. Yes, I'm very familiar with Spanx. (laughs) Nice, yeah. I love how it's such a simple product and she made a multi-million dollar business out of it and she was so consistent, so resilient. I think she's yeah, a true role model, at least for me. And she has also a great masterclass, by the way, for anybody (laughs) who has a masterclass subscription, go watch your masterclass. Yeah, I guess bonus toolbox question. You mentioned you traded your Netflix for a masterclass subscription. What's your favorite masterclass? It would be that one, yeah. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much for this conversation. We really appreciated your time. Also, I'm very inspired after this talk, Vanessa, and I think there is, as Jacqueline just said, plenty for us to do after talking to you from healthy nutrition to morning meditation. I think it was a very, very insightful talk, and thank you for that. Thank you, too. Thank you for the nice words, and thanks you so much for having me. The Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork, together with Annabelle Schaefer, Chris Schnabel, Yulia Kosovskaya, and Jacqueline Hofsmith. If you like our podcast and would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends about Mostly Awesome. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de is always open for your feedback or any warm intros. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.